The global north's insatiable appetite for the latest fashion, coupled with gargantuan marketing budgets to continue to promote that kind of consumption, has contributed to massive amounts of clothing waste and pollution. The ripple effect has greatly impacted countries in the global south. I'm Rebecca Burgess, the founder of a California-based nonprofit called Fibershed. Learn more on the Weaving Voices podcast, a Whetstone Radio Collective podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome listeners to Whetstone Audio Dispatch, a series of one-off podcasts about what food tells us about ourselves. I'm Stephen Satterfield, founder of Whetstone Media. In these dispatches, you'll hear me in conversation with journalists from around the world on topics at the intersection of food, conflict, climate, politics, and more. Our first episode is about the Baguette Revolt that took place in 2011 in Tunisia. And to tell the story, we're speaking with journalist Leili Faroudi, who was based in Tunis for many years and interviewed several locals affected by the uprising. Hi, Leili. Thank you for joining us on our inaugural episode of Whetstone Audio Dispatch. Thanks so much for having me, Stephen. So can you tell us what was happening in Tunis during the Arab Spring of 2011, and how did the baguette become a symbol of resistance? Yeah, so the uprising started in December 2010 as a revolt in one town in an inland region of Tunisia, and it was a revolt against injustice and marginalization. It was sparked by a young man, Mohamed Bouazizi, who set himself alight after he was publicly humiliated when a, a police officer tried to confiscate the fruit that he was selling. And his death just kind of sparked public anger. And so people started protesting in his town. The police tried to crack down. And then this made the protest spread even further. And then eventually it became a national revolt, uh, reached the capital. The demands became as much about freedom and an end to dictatorship as it was about marginalization and, and ending kind of material struggles. And then eventually this led to the, the toppling of the president, Zin al-Abdin Ben Ali. And specifically the baguette. Why is the baguette so richly important in Tunisia? Bread means to be able to live and eat, to provide for your family. So it signifies kind of material well-being. And that was one of the main demands of the revolution. So bringing a baguette to the street is you're, you're demanding a better material situation, being able to have food on the table and being able to live in dignity. Well, firstly, the baguette is just everywhere all the time. It is by far the most widely consumed type of bread. It is eaten alongside every meal, even couscous and pasta. And tracing the history of how this came to be, how this loaf became a Tunisian staple, can really help understand the roots of the revolution, its main demands, and the reasons people are still demanding better today. The uprising started in December 2010 as a revolt in one town in an inland region of Tunisia. It was a revolt against injustice and marginalization, and when the police tried to repress it, it just got bigger. The protests spread and became political against the police state, asking for freedom and an end to dictatorship. 
One of the main slogans you could hear in towns and cities all over the country was work, freedom, national dignity. Or sometimes even bread, freedom, national dignity. On January 14, 2011, the movement toppled the president, Zine El Abidin Ben Ali. This was something no one thought would happen, and it galvanized people across the Middle East and North Africa to demand change in their own countries. These mass uprisings, which toppled dictators and sparked civil wars, came to be known as the Arab Spring. Bread means to be able to live and eat, to provide for your family. It signifies work and is colloquially used that way in the Tunisian dialect, kind of like how we say the breadwinner in English. This material well-being and sufficiency is keenly felt as an essential part of human dignity. During the revolution, people would brandish baguettes on the street during marches, bread featured in the slogans. There is a particularly iconic photo of a lone skinny man with a cigarette in his mouth on the main avenue in Tunis, bravely pointing a baguette at the anti-riot police, like a machine gun. This man even inspired a social media superhero, Captain Khobza. Khubz means bread in Arabic. Khubza means this big baguette type of bread in particular. The big baguette, the khubza, weighs 450 grams before being baked. The smaller size, known in Tunisian simply as baguette, weighs 250 grams pre-baked. The khubza and the baguette are made with the same type of flour, a white soft wheat that is imported and is sold to bakers in 100 kilogram bags, which are subsidized by the government. You pay around nine cents for a big baguette and around seven cents for a small one. The loaf has shrunk over time. The pre-baked weight of the big khubza used to be a kilo back in the day. Well, I have good memories about the big bread, the kilo bread. I remember that going to the bakery in the morning in a small town. So we smell all this bread. There were bakeries that were not really mechanized, so they do everything by hand. This is Ahmed Ben Masoud. He's an audiologist from Duz, a town in the south of Tunisia. He spent 17 days in prison in the 80s for the sake of bread, among other things. We'll talk about that more later. We prefer the warm bread, as I think all Tunisians, we, we, we don't eat next day bread. Even That's why we throw away bread here in Tunisia. We like it always morning. In the morning, we go to the either bakery or grocery store to find uh, fresh breads. In the afternoon, we don't eat it, just to throw it away. I think most people prefer warm bread, but this baguette really needs to be eaten hot because as soon as it cools down, it goes dry and hard. A baker told me that this is to do with the amount of water in the dough. There is very little of it, so that the dough comes out quite hard and can be molded into a baguette shape by a machine. But the throwaway attitude Ahmed mentions doesn't apply to the traditional tabuna bread, for example. I met a lady called Halima who makes this tabuna bread in her home in Tunis. 
She told me that she sells around 25 pieces a day and that none of it will go to waste. A lot of people will keep this bread. They will heat it up and eat it. The baguette, no. The baguette, you throw it all away. They eat this one because it is made with oil. The other one, no. The baguette, you throw the whole thing away. Actually, everyone I spoke to said they would rather eat this bread. It's tastier, it actually fills you up, and it keeps for more than one day. The first thing they say to differentiate it from the baguette is that it's made from semolina flour as opposed to soft wheat. It's said like a self-evidence that semolina flour bread is better. It's another world. Another world, not like the baguette. You leave the baguette to the side, behind you. This you eat with mulukheya, with salata mushweya, the best food. And for the Eid holiday, when people have a grill with the lamb and salata mushweya, that is with tabuna. Yet it is the baguette that dominates Tunisian diets. To get an idea of how this bread, an imported and actually less appreciated product, took off in Tunisia, I spoke to Max Isle, a postdoc researcher on national liberation and agrarian questions at Wageningen University in the Netherlands and author of A People's Green New Deal. When we met in Tunis, I asked him about this wheat dichotomy, the soft wheat used in the white baguette and the hard wheat used for semolina flour. So on a global basis, soft wheat is the overwhelmingly planted and harvested and processed and consumed type of wheat to the point that most people actually don't really understand that there's these two types of wheat that exist in the world, soft wheat and hard wheat. In essence, they are, although they have the same name in terms of their kind of overall social and elementary function, you can kind of consider them separate cereals, even though they will often be able to grow very similarly in similar ecological conditions and with similar amounts of precipitation and so forth, although hard wheat does a little better in low precipitation areas. And so this is uh, an extremely cheap source of more or less empty calories, but there's no iron, there's no, there's a lot of the vitamins are lacking in this type of bread as compared to uh, a barley or a hard wheat or even a, a higher quality uh, soft wheat. The baguette form was inherited from the French, who colonized Tunisia from 1881 to 1956. And it was also the French who started cultivating soft wheat. While today Tunisia is highly reliant on imported cereals, it is said that during the Roman Empire, North Africa was known as the granary of the empire, as crops were grown here and exported to Rome and other places. The French colonial government was particularly keen on this idea and styled itself as a new Rome. When the French arrived, they found that Tunisian farmers grew hard wheat and viewed soft wheat as an undesirable product, often throwing it away. So in keeping with European tastes and habits, the French started introducing different varieties of soft wheat in the early 1900s. And by 1940, Tunisia was a net exporter of wheat, mostly soft wheat at first, and the majority of which was sent to France. In the same neighborhood as Halima, I met a 62-year-old baker called Tofik Khedri. He has a small bakery with a big rotating oven to make the industrial baguette using this soft wheat. The bakery was set up by his father, who had moved to Tunis aged 18 
from a small town in the south of the country to find work. He started making baguettes, which was a good business because they were increasingly in demand as more people arrived to the city, like he did, looking for work and eating cheap, quick food. Meanwhile, Tofi grew up eating tabuna made by his mum, which he liked better, he still likes it better, but he now sees the baguette status quo just as the natural way things developed, part of progress. Match. Bye-bye. No more. Bye-bye. Rarely, very little. We started to buy the baguette. Mostly we get baguettes from the bakery. That's it. We don't have time for tabuna. Give me the baguette. Give me the sandwich. The time. The times have changed. He works, he comes and grabs. A baguette and goes and works for himself. I have a wife and two children. My wife works in a bank. She has no idea about bread. She's with the pen and typewriter. The consumption of soft wheat, though, was actively encouraged in Tunisia. And Tofik was on the receiving end of that when he was a child. Here he is sharing some of those memories. <laughs> In school, we would get the petit pain. You take this baguette and cut it into petit pain, like a sandwich. You put cheese, butter in it. It was the Americans that would bring bread before. At school, they would give us a coffee, milk and chocolate and a petit pain and cheese. We were young. It was in 1975 when you weren't even born. It was breakfast at school. The state used to give people bread. People were poor. The state used to help people. The government will give them training. Fatma, from down the road, she passed away now. Bless her soul, she would come in the morning at nine and bring the bread, the butter and everything to make a sandwich. I would leave my coffee at home and go to school because the milk and chocolate was incredible. It was amazing, the chocolate milk. What Tofik is describing is the PL480 policy a humanitarian aid program launched by the US government in the late 50s, which it called Food for Peace. The initiative for this program came when the US had a wheat surplus. Farmers were producing too much wheat and the government was buying and storing it as part of New Deal era protections, which was pushing prices downwards. So the US government wanted to shift this grain and PL480 provided a way to do that, which was in both its political and economic interests. Regarding the surpluses, one U.S. congressman even said, quote, with proper use, these surpluses can be made a far more potential means of combating the spread of communism than the hydrogen bomb. Making people reliant on food. I mean, there's also very cynical. They were thinking about food as a weapon, for sure. We see this in the, in the modern day, you know, in places like Palestine and Yemen, where food is being used as a weapon. Of course, they were definitely thinking, okay, we're going to habituate people to this, and then it will be a future market for cereals. So this is 
certainly part of how they're conceptualizing the PL480, but it's also just it's these multiple strands that combine into all the benefits that can accrue from that the U.S. can accrue from deploying the wheat it has piling up in its silos and setting it to work in controlling the trajectory of third world development, especially in countries like Tunisia, Egypt, India, which were not aligned at that point, right? Which were not part of the second world, which were not adopted in a Soviet or Chinese style command planning, where there was a contest over what the shape and form of development in these countries would be. And the U.S. wanted to make sure that this would, these would look as much like so-called market economies as was possible. What happened with the U.S. is uh, a series of programs that were very subtle in their effects. It, you know, in, in basically every country in the post-colonial world, you had two developmental options, right? Two ways to try to turn your country into a country that was no longer afflicted with extremely widespread poverty. And when I talk about two developmental options, I mean that there were two paths that were taken, not that the two paths were equally successful. I mean, one was immediately set out by China in 1949. I mean, you had a widespread redistribution of land. The other option was a system of agricultural development, which would essentially leave the medium to large landholding class in place and rely on them to provide the agricultural and the, the elementary needs of the population while carrying out some form of industrialization. Now, of course, these weren't necessarily two separate paths. How did the importing of wheat from the U.S. to Tunisia play into this? So it's against this that the Tunisian government has to make a fundamental choice, right? It's like, okay, we don't want to redistribute the land to deal with the hungry people. You don't want to do that. So what do you do? You can't just let these people go hungry because hungry people have a propensity to disrupt the social structure. So they were very worried about a revolution. So this was kind of the pivot for a huge dietary transition, a huge developmental transition, a huge process of social containment that really was a kind of pivot that uh, made Tunisia very much into what Tunisia became after that. The food for peace is basically what allowed the Tunisian government to carry out this entire type of process of social planning with an agriculture that's based on large farms and also medium farms, with an agriculture that's based on a capitalist agriculture, with an agriculture that a lot of it is oriented towards export, that is not oriented towards like the human development of the population, and that's also assisting an industrialization process that's based on keeping low wages in the industrial sector, right? The reason you subsidize cereal uh, products is to keep social peace, of course, but it's related to wages, right? Because the cereal, the cost of cereal, the cost of a loaf of bread is legible as a percentage of a wage. So it's a way of controlling the amount of money that goes into the wages. Uh, it's a way of controlling the wages of the working class, too. So in a way, the baguette has been a weapon of social control and foreign policy, a way to quell revolution. Yet in 2011, this same baguette was being pointed like a gun at the police. 
It was being waved in the air in defiance of dictatorship. To find out more about the baguette as a tool for resistance, I went to Douz, a town on the edge of the Tunisian Sahara, and the starting place of what became a national revolt in 1984. It was sparked by the decision to remove the bread subsidies, raising the price of bread by 110% from 80 millims to 170 millims. The reform was made to get a loan from the International Monetary Fund. It wasn't just in Tunisia. Similar food riots were provoked across the region and beyond during the 70s and 80s, following IMF austerity reforms. The protests in Douze started on the 29th of December, 1983, right after the price hike. It quickly spread to neighbouring Kabylie and Gebers in the south, and by the 3rd of January 1984, it was a national revolt and had reached the capital. The police were brutal, and some 100 people were killed. But the opposition became too much for the regime, and on the 6th of January, Habibur Giba, the president who had ruled Tunisia since independence, backtracked. At my knowledge, yes, was the first time. And it was the first time that the system, political system, Bourguiba, start realizing that he doesn't have carte blanche to do whatever in this country. First time that Bourguiba says, stop. Now you're going to destroy the system that he was dreaming of building. And first time Bourguiba took really very strong measures to stop something, refuse to go with all those measures, eliminate the government, and change all these, his staff and his political bureau and so on. This is Ahmed Ben Masoud, who we heard at the beginning. He was 26 at the time of the bread revolt and was one of those rallying people in Douze. He gave a speech in the centre of town, near to the governor's building, right by the main roundabout where most traffic would pass. And the speech was about, yeah, that this was unacceptable. This is speech is this is unacceptable. This is a police violation. This is insulting people. This is impoverishing uh, people. This is obeying to the international funds and international monetary funds. And this is stealing people of their resources. This is more money in the pockets of, of the government of the rich people. But Ahmed sees bread and the bread subsidies to represent much more than just the baguette. Often when speaking to people, I found that conversations about bread seamlessly flowed into conversations about a lot of other things, like 
other food essentials and fuel, but also healthcare and education. Well, the bread is in our culture. Uh, you can say it started to be a, a metaphor. I say I'm working for my kids' bread. We say bread is bitter. Khubza means you have to work hard to get the bread. We say khubza means the prices are flying. We say khubz uma ubnalila. I live on just bread and water and I won't accept this system. When we talk about bread, it means our food, our decency, our dignity. If you don't have food on the table, you have no dignity in front of your, of your family. If you beg to bring food to your family, you're losing your dignity. And bread comes with work, we say. شغل حريه كرامه وطنيه شغل we want jobs because the young man he doesn't want to ask his mom or dad to give him some money packed money demanding yeah more ambitious but you want to touch my my food you can making me hungry we're not talking about bread only we're talking about fuel all kinds of fuel we're talking about electricity we're talking about war we're talking about essential medical medication that it's offered in hospitals. The subsidies all or this measure is when to touch everything. When you raise the cost of energy, you can raise everything else. Transportation, whatever it's happening with it, food and everything else. I think the question is not bread. We're just talking about using it, but the government in a few months won't find salaries for the workers, for the, the government laborers. With this pandemic, it's now revealed that we have no strong sanitary system. Hospitals, are, they have nothing. Most Tunisian, even their education, their way of looking at life, a lot of people start not eating the white bread, I say. They start looking health-wise if they eat less bread, less pasta, less heavy meat and stuff, that is better for their health. So it's not a question of bread, but it's symbolic. It means don't touch my very low level of living. On the 25th of July last year, the President Kais Syed seized total power suspending parliament and dismissing the prime minister. This was undemocratic and in violation of the constitution. Yet that night, there were celebrations on the street, as people were happy to see the back of the parliament, which had done nothing to improve the economic situation and which had overseen a disastrous management of the COVID-19 crisis. The coup came following a day of intense protests across the country. This was a continuation of unrest earlier in the year, particularly in January, starting on the 10th anniversary of the revolution and continuing day and night. At one protest around this time a year ago that marched from a working-class Tunis neighbourhood at Adaman to the Tunisian parliament in Bardo, 
I saw a protester holding a baguette in his hand. I didn't manage to speak to him that day, but I had photographed him and knew which neighborhood he was from. When I asked around, I was directed to the roof of the house of a woman called Fatma Jram, a teacher and activist who lives in Etadaman and whose roof served as the protest preparation point that day. The baguette on the street had come from her kitchen. It seems that along with painting slogans on banners, sourcing a baguette is now a standard part of preparation. It has become a prop that is embedded in Tunisian protest culture. It's true. That day they took the bread to say our combat is the bread. But in general, in every protest, you'll see someone with bread. In the south, on the coast, or in whatever region. Because bread is bread. Us, we eat a lot of bread. In Tunisia, the word bread means clothes, life, bills for water and electricity, rent. Bread is the symbol of life, the life of Tunisians. The history of bread is the history of the 14th of January also. So in general, there were problems with freedom, but the fundamental problem is about bread. What will we eat? What will my child eat? What will he wear? How will he study? How will we pay the rent? That is bread. Right now in Tunisia, the parliament is still frozen and the president is talking about rehauling the constitution. While freedoms gained are being eroded and people are struggling to find bread and bakeries and flour in the shops. The economy is in crisis and the government doesn't have money to pay for wheat imports. Global grain prices were already increasing and now with the war in Ukraine, a major wheat producer, they have exploded. To launch the post-COVID economic recovery, the last government had been negotiating to secure a $4 billion IMF loan. And one of the proposed reforms to secure the loan was to cancel food subsidies, which would have doubled or tripled the price of bread. This was interrupted by Sai's power grab in July, but the new government is now in touch with the IMF to, again, negotiate a loan. One leaked document suggests that the government is looking to gradually remove the subsidy on basic goods like bread. But then the Ministry of Commerce stated that there would be no increase in the price of bread this year, even though, with global prices rising, the bill weighs heavier and heavier on the state budget. Touching the price of bread is controversial and potentially explosive. This was Fatima's reaction to the previous government's negotiations, and something those in power now will be aware of. The government will be finished if they remove it, the subsidies. They know that it would be the end of them. So, Laylee, obviously there's a lot to unpack with this story, but what's not lost on me is that the events that began the uprising of 2011 also have relevance in the news of today. Can you break down this connection for us? When I went back to Tunisia a couple of weeks ago, the situation was really alarming. There's very serious wheat shortages. Bakeries are not able to find the quantities of flour that they need. 
they're decreasing the size of their baguettes or closing early due to the lack of produce to sell. And I went back to the neighborhood Jabal Ahma to see Halima. And she told me that she's barely been able to, to make tabuna, this traditional bread, for the last two months because she's not been able to find the semolina flour or because it's too expensive to buy in the smaller quantities that are available now. And this was in the capital Tunis, so in, in more rural regions, it's even, it's even worse. These shortages are, it says something about how Tunisia has become so incredibly reliant on imports for their basic needs, like grains, like wheat, to make bread. What's led to these shortages is, is the kind of economic crisis that Tunisia is going through, so the government's not been able to pay for their wheat imports, especially as the global price of wheat has been rising. And then now, due to the war in Ukraine, wheat prices are at a record high. I mean, yesterday, Tunisia tried to buy wheat and had to cancel the tender because the prices were just too high. It was $500 per tonne, which is kind of double what it was in the middle of last year. Russia and Ukraine together supply almost a third of the world's wheat. And all of those exports are currently at a standstill because of the fighting. Ukrainian farmers are not planting. And we've seen in history that a shortage of bread is very consequential and can provoke revolts. The year that preceded the Arab Spring, 2010, was also marked by steep increases in the price of wheat. And Ukraine is a breadbasket. Some of their biggest buyers are sort of Tunisia, I think more than 50% of its, uh, around 50% of its wheat supply is from Ukraine. Libya also hugely reliant on Ukraine, as is Lebanon. Yes, dramatic. You know, it's obvious to me the ways in which bread is a symbol for what is essential. And in Tunisia, a baguette and its ubiquity became a way of saying, this, this is the bare minimum. In the best of times, it can seem like even the most vulnerable among us have access to a loaf. Or, in the parlance of the colonial residue of Tunisia, a baguette. But in the worst of times, even bread is scarce, and nothing speaks more loudly than a hungry stomach. Food is more expensive than ever, and war will undoubtedly destroy this year's wheat harvest, not just for Ukraine, but also Morocco and even Tunisia, who rely on this wheat. It will be hard for the symbolism not to stick, especially the next time I'm holding a baguette in my hand. I will be reminded that the flip side of the gratitude that I am experiencing is revolution. Thank you, Laylee, for bringing us this story. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into this story. We will be back soon with more Whetstone Audio Dispatch. In the meantime, you can subscribe to Whetstone Audio Dispatch anywhere you get your podcast. 
Thank you to producer and reporter Laylee Faroudi, audio editor Kat Hong, Whetstone head of podcast Celine Glacier, Whetstone sound engineer Max Kotelchuk, and to associate producer Quentin LeBeau. You can learn more about this podcast on whetstoneradio.com, on Instagram and Twitter at Whetstone Radio, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Whetstone Radio Collective, for more podcast video content. You can learn more about all things happening at Whetstone at whetstonemagazine.com. <laughs>